Hello there, friends. We are back with our third podcast. And as we say, third tries the charm, right? That's right. Third How time's are you doing, the charm. Riley? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. It was a fun week, and we got basketball starting up for intramurals at school. So I'm, uh, I'm dying out here. So Landon's <laughs> brain is going to have to carry us through this one because my body's done. After last week, we'll play uh, catch up. Uh, we kind of discussed, of course, patriotism and nationalism last week. I was feeling kind of under the weather, so definitely glad to be back. Yeah. And I'll kind of be co-leading this episode with a little stronger emphasis. Mm -hmm. So I hope you guys are excited because today's topic is democracy. Why is it important? Is America a democracy? And why is it still something that seems to be a buzzword in a sense? Like, is America's democracy dying or is democracy uh, threatened? These are all topics which I think we should be well-informed in uh, because we are, again, constituents for representatives in a society, which we will delve into what it is. We live in a society. And as we know with this great, great example of a democracy, we say, to teach kids about democracy, I let them vote on dinner. They voted on pizza. Then I made tacos because that... Is he told me the joke quotes. beforehand, and I still laughed at it. That's a good joke. Oh. Yeah, uh, I butcher that, but yeah, to say it again, <laughs> to teach kids about democracy, I let them vote on dinner. Then I picked, they picked pizza. Then I made tacos because they don't live in a swing state. <laughs> there we go. Oh, starting off strong. Let's see it. So, first point I want to make is America a democracy? I would say not a sole democracy. Any input, Riley? Well, there are, there are sort of, uh, there's this idea now nowadays that there are three kinds of modern government in their spheres, and they can overlap a little bit, so they're not all the same, but they sort of fall under three branches, and it's communism, democracy, or fascism. And so um, when, you, when you view the political world that way, then yeah, the United States would be a democracy, and there are different kinds of democracy, but um, especially that last one, that third one, like fascism, just a really quick thing on it. People use fascist and authoritarian interchangeably, and they're not the same thing at all. Fascism is an actual kind of government, so there are kinds of real fascist governments, usually with a dictator, with sole control. But there, there can, like authoritarian is like on a scale, and it's um, from authoritarian to libertarian governments. For example, uh, Japan has like really, really tight um, crime laws, and I know that in a lot of Western democracies, speech isn't totally free. Freedom of speech isn't its own thing. And so, you know, on the sliding scale from libertarian to authoritarian, they're more authoritarian than, say, the United States. And so that's just an important uh, distinction note to make. Right? Yeah. And so we can see that, to summarize it, kind of is different levels of rights and freedoms mm -hmm. conflicting with government power. And this is, again, a core idea I think we'll be talking about is these balances of how do our rights end up being limited by government and how is the government limited by our rights. So these are great topics that mm -hmm. we're getting into. And that brings me to my point of why democracy is not the sole institution in America. America is what we'll call a constitutional republic. A democracy, which there are two main types, are a direct democracy, which is what we often hear of in Athens, the birthplace of democracy in the world, even though from our standards we would not consider it democratic at all. <laughs> in fact, they had a lottery system, which sounds crazy, but basically have a random appointment of volunteers who are citizens of Athens who were, again, eligible to be 
in the Senate and to be in these roles of government positions. But again, it was a lottery. It wasn't like they were campaigning to be elected or anything. And one can say a day that that might be what we want to go back to. <laughs> but <laughs> Hunger um, Games democracy. Oh, yeah, so I am vote is a tribute. <laughs> so that was the birthplace of democracy. And then as we see it expand, we see that there are issues, especially one that one of the thought uh, philosophers of the origin of the kind of general Enlightenment age for the U.S. was de Montesquieu. And de Montesquieu believed that democracies and republics were limited to size and that a nation as large as America would become would inevitably be crippled and would not be able to sustain itself as a democracy of a sort, which, again, we'll get into why he believed that. But that is a really interesting piece that he believed because he thought that as a population grows, the democratic will of the people inherently decreases because you have more people represented by an ever small group of government. So when we think of a direct democracy, that's like us all getting to vote on a piece of legislation mm -hmm. on your phone, which is actually feasible now as technology, mm -hmm. but we don't function as a direct democracy. We function as a representative democracy, which means we, again, elect people who represent us to pass legislation mm -hmm. and to direct policy and even all three branches, none of us actually elect them directly. Yeah. The president gets voted through the Electoral College. The judicial gets appointed by the president with agreement or consent of the Senate. Mm -hmm. We have then the legislative who are appointed somewhat most directly. Mm -hmm. Probably agree. Yeah. That, yeah. And then local so, races uh, occasionally in some states, like, for example, here in Montana, you can vote for judges directly. Back where I live in Washington, you can vote for your county sheriff directly. So more local government, there's a lot more uh, direct democratic voting. But this is like sort of going back to the de Montesquieu point, like uh, that was part of the debate, whether how much power the federal government should have, whether it should be basically a bunch of almost completely independent states, and they basically only come together for wartime, or does there need to be a strong executive and so that was part of the whole debate between Madison and Hamilton. Instead of Hamilton, yes. right. Hamilton yes! was a Federalist, which <laughs> got that great. Which some would believe Hamilton even wanted a modern monarchy in America pretty strongly because he believed in a really strong central government. He was always known as the bank guy because he wanted a strong national bank. Mm -hmm. And the purposes of that was that he saw America would be stronger if it was united as one cohesive government. And the failures of the Articles of Confederation kind of helped prove his point. But there was also a very strong argument from the Anti-Federalists, which we can uh, maybe mention the Brutus Papers, which opposed the Federalist Papers, and they really advocate for states' rights. And we can see this compromise really show through Amendment 10 of the Constitution, the last one of the Bill of Rights, which states, and I don't have it directly, but you can pull up the quote if you want to fact check, mm -hmm. it's that any laws and authority not explicitly given to the federal government falls back on the states in a nutshell. And some can argue that the necessary and proper clause overrides that. And that's why, again, the anti-federalists really argued strongly against it. But needless to say, it failed, and we now still have that. And we've seen over the past 250 years, the federal government has incrementally gotten stronger. And we can also kind of delve into why that is and why that might be necessary to sustain what we believe is a democracy mm -hmm. and why others might disagree. So that is a segue. Do you want the fact check? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Was it the 10th Amendment? 10th Amendment. Okay. 
The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited uh, by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So it's sort of saying, like, whatever we didn't talk about, yeah. the states. It's the state's power, not the federal power. So. Right. so we can see the compromise there. Absolutely. So also really trying to uh, uh, emphasize the distinction between democracy and republic. If we are this sort of constitutional republic with a representative democracy, then what is republic? And, I mean, the Latin definition of it means the public thing. And so Britannica says that modern representative democracies are by definition republics, which is kind of curious is how we've slowly grown from this Athens-type democracy of you kind of get randomly voted in and then you have uh, kind of an aristocratic-type group who are generals and then you have all the people directly vote on legislation. Uh, it was kind of a complicated system, but still is a direct democracy in the sense that each eligible person got to vote. And so then we see modern democracies are actually republics where they don't get a direct vote, but they again get to choose a representative in a Republican-type setting, and then those representatives get to vote for legislation. And that's why republics actually don't have to be a democracy in a sense that uh, you can have oligarchies, mm. you can have even monarchies if the monarch is still under the will of the people. Uh, to a sense, at least, and even aristo aristocracies. Yeah, yeah. there's there's such things as monarchies where the monarch is still he he's not actually the ultimate ruler. Like when we think of a monarch, when we think of a king, we think, oh, this guy has total and complete absolute power, and we think, uh, you know, passed down purely through bloodline, and that's not always the case. I mean, towards the end of the I don't know monarchical era. Um, there, are, there are quite a few instances of kings being subject to a law that was above them. So we think of the king being above the law, but there's such a thing as kings being below a supreme law. So, right. And that kind of also comes back to this emphasis on why would a good monarchy be better than a democracy? Mm -hmm. But, of course, we'll fail in a human world where each person is flawed mm -hmm. because... I can start out and saying that with a democracy, you have this inherent stability from opposing forces because people will inevitably build themselves into different groups with mm -hmm. different interests, and they oppose each other. People naturally like to argue. And with that, you end up avoiding the extremes and end up having to compromise to be functioning as a society mm -hmm. versus a single monarch with absolute authority ends up... Well, the thing about monarchies compared to demo democracy is that a king with absolute power who is a good person. I don't actually think it's true that absolute power corrupts absolutely. It just reveals who you already were. Amplifies the character. Yeah, and so it takes all of your character flaws and your best character traits and brings them to the absolute extreme. So it's always been my contention that monarchies are capable of more good and more evil than democracies, which sort of put a cap on the ultimate um, moral ends. They sort of, just, just like how they take their voting base and it's less the extremes. It's also with morality. It's less the extremes. Less the extremes, right. Because you can have one monarch die, and then their mm -hmm. next generation can be a completely different leader. Mm -hmm. And the society's stability all falls on one person. Mm -hmm. Democracy, of course, falls back on everyone. Mm -hmm. But then the question is, is the majority always right? No. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I hope that you all agree over, yeah, there as well. Majority isn't always right, which makes the question of a democracy inherently unstable, right? Because if a majority 
is able to vote on anything and change anything, a society is always shaping and shifting depending on the majoritarian mm-hmm. opinion. And the founders, of course, understood this. And although some of our electoral system kind of falls back on this majoritarianism, which I know there's been increasing debates over and issues with, and majoritarianism just basically means that's a winner-takes-all approach. You have no plurality or kind of this, uh, what some would say, the European system of government mm-hmm. in a sense of having mixed parties because you get how many percentage of votes kind of on your party versus 51% wins. Oh, you get 100% of the authority there mm-hmm. versus the 49%, you get nothing. Mm-hmm. Except you keep your rights to talk. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully, I mean, in theory, you could repeal. I mean, it would. We're, even even as crazy as things get in our political system, there's no way the Bill of Rights would. I can't even think of one that could be overturned. Some of them have been overturned by proxy. I mean, mm. unreasonable search and seizure, like some of the things that the FBI does. I mean, just they literally went and uh, went after James O'Keefe last last year because of the. At, at first, they were saying it was fake, but the Ashley Biden diary. And then they kind of proved it was real by going and FBI raiding his house and the houses of a bunch of journalists or FISA courts, how they literally just, you know, they're secret. They, they don't have to actually show the judge everything, and the judge literally just has to sign off on them. I mean, FISA courts have, like, over a 99% um, like a, approval rate. Like from oh. the judge, yeah, it's that insane. High, wow. It's really high. It's like well, might not be ninety, but it's like ninety-seven or something. Like up in the nineties, something incredible. Above, yeah. um, but you know, actually going through the system and overturning one of the Bill of Rights, that's not supposed to happen. And there are hopefully enough safeguards in place to make sure that you know it's not total will of the people. There are actually some things that are supposed to be untouchable. So, and so back on the Bill of Rights, then there's a quote by the Bill of Rights Institute. That says, and I quote, the Bill of Rights is simultaneously the most celebrated feature of our democracy and the most anti-democratic feature of our constitutional republic. Yeah, I want, I want to know more. I don't know, I don't know what it means by being the most anti-democratic. Right. So in a sense of a democracy, like we discussed just a few minutes ago, is this majoritarian idea of the, demo- the majority gets to vote and overturn whatever they want, then the Bill of Rights firmly establishes that no matter what the majority, even if it's 99% of the people, want something, besides, of course, the very questionable clause of being able to make new amendments that Mm -hmm. can kind of repeal old amendments, as we found with the alcohol prohibition, 18th Amendment, repealed in the 21st. Mm -hmm. But besides that, with like a three-fourth state's approval and two-thirds to be able to even vote on in the first place. We see that no matter what the majority believes, then the Bill of Rights cannot be overturned. And so it basically sets this foundation, Mm -hmm. which is inherently anti-democratic in the part that the majority can't change it based on a vote. Yep. Even if 90% of people wanted the Bill of Rights gone, it'd be pretty hard to get rid of it. Um. Because the majority always will want to maintain their power above the minority and not wish to have the minority become the new majority. So the question of the Bill of Rights is really trying to level the playing ground and with establishing this freedom of press, freedom of speech, freedom of protest, freedom of religion, and all the rest of the other amendments, like unreasonable search and seizures, uh, right to speedy trial, the Tenth Amendment, which again kind of falls back on the state's authorities, uh, what isn't explicitly meant for the federal government, are all very, very key foundational rights that are given to all of us to be able to maintain a constitutional republic 
above a pure majoritarian democracy. Yeah, you said given to us, but it's also important to note that they went through very important pains to make sure that it was, um, even if even if you accepted the argument that the founders were all deist or something, or you know you want religion completely out of it. Well, not all the way because they put they, I mean they put God uh, as endowed by our Creator. You know, it's that uh, opening of the Declaration. Declaration yeah. of Independence. So um, I know the Declaration of the Independence isn't technically law, but it's very important for understanding the Constitution and the spirit of the law, as some would say. But the, the point is, is that uh, if they're actually rights, then they aren't up for discussion. They're from somewhere else. It, it, if a new government came in and took away freedom of speech and the right to bear arms and unlawful search and seizure and blah, 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 it, it would be unjust for them to do so because they're rights. And so people get kind of flippant with rights nowadays, and they talk an awful lot about, um, you know, we need a right to this, we need a right to that. Well, you should really think about it because that means everywhere it's not happening, those people are violating human rights. And like, for example, with uh, the UN, mm. if human rights are being violated, violated, then you have to go in there and stop it, which is, which is a whole nother argument. But. Yeah, and so I guess to quote the actual declaration, which in my opinion is the greatest breakup letter of all times. If you're breaking up with someone, <laughs> you want to give them a declaration of independence. I don't know, 99 <laughs> Theses is pretty good too. Oh, oh that, that's a good one. Yeah, the 95 Theses. Yeah. Oh, oh 95, not 99. Oh, there's four that I think you added there just for the kicks. <laughs> Even better. You guys leave the fridge open all the time. Uh, right. But it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted. And so we can see that, to secure rights. So mm -hmm. rights, of course, aren't given, and as I misspoke, by the government, but again, they are secured and, in a sense, bestowed in a sense of uh, provision by mm -hmm. the government. And we can see that in today's culture, as I think the definition of rights is being expanded to anything under the sun. Uh, it can also come back to this really important topic of what do you genuinely believe is a right? And what do you really, 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 really want? But you really need to stop yourself short and say, okay, I guess this isn't a right. I think there's a very important distinction there. And it can really change the entire construct of how we deal with policy and laws if we are so bold to assume that things are rights that aren't. Mm. So it can come back to that. But I guess moving on from the Bill of Rights and back to this general idea of democracy, I wanted to bring it up because I see this generation of students, and as we are college students, of course, we see this group of people who really just accept the word democracy for being the kind of the best thing. I mean, mm -hmm. you can always tout it as this symbol of pride or something get behind. And mm -hmm. if you believe that's being threatened, the opponent is necessarily, by default, the anti-moral character, right? Mm -hmm. They're against democracy, mm -hmm. thus they must be abandoned, uh, and all their arguments be forgotten or just ignored, because mm -hmm. they often lose the moral high ground. Mm -hmm. but the question is, is that actually what democracy is, or is that what we've ended up shaping it to be to then become the moral superior? Mm -hmm. Well, in other societies, in like, you know, going back to the three in communist or fascist societies, uh, not in public, but at least before they happened, there were lots of discussion about what kind of government should we be. And there are places where, um, you know, 
once once one kind of thing has been happening for so long, it becomes a norm. And so once, you know, we're now at the point where democracy hasn't even been debated as the best, at least since po post-World War II, but probably longer than that. And so um, you just have to be aware, like being aware of our own biases and everything. You, If you're listening to this, I'm almost 100% certain we have no international listeners, so this is going to be a blanket statement for people who live in the United States. We still love you from Malawi. <laughs> yeah, we love you guys. But um, we, you, you live in a democratic society. The democratic society is the norm. You've never questioned democratic society, most likely. Um, and that's all you... All the information you get also came out of a democratic society. So it's you only know about, you're only ever seeing it from this one point of view. So it's, it'd be a smart idea to go through and figure out, should we should this be the system that we put in place? Is this Does this actually work as advertised? Right. And, and so on the flip side, I think a lot of the time college students have their entire worldview shaken when they're exposed to even a kernel of some new sort of semi-truth even mm -hmm. or something that's framed in a nice way, like reading the Communist Manifesto without actually understanding mm -hmm. what it means and then becoming a full-blown communist supporter. Because mm -hmm. again, you've broken away from being surrounded fully in democratic norms and mm -hmm. ideals and a whole society built around that. So then you're like, oh, I guess it's kind of rebellious, and now mm -hmm. I'm like this intellectual superior, my former self. Yeah. And so I think I actually like communism more mm -hmm. because it actually has other benefits that democracy fails to address yeah. without looking at the thing holistically. And we really want to take very, very much care yeah. to look at things holistically because that's what determines health. Yeah, we want to be fairly neutral when talking about, I mean, we're not going to be here to sing democracy's praises, and we're not going to be here to get out the red flag and grab grab your hammer and sickle, everybody. Let's do this. But, you know. Uh, <laughs> oh, you're killing me, man. This is, this is the best podcast so far. But there is a, oh, my gosh. I'm forgetting. There's, there's also, like, people will see, like, the reactionaries, like you're talking about, like, going to college and everything, and they're saying, oh, my gosh, I don't want to be that that guy. So you want to, and there are people who are people pleasers and they just, they want to stay in the middle all the time. In America, the middle is democracy. And so, but then like, for example, I'm going to give a statement that some people are going to think about it and then they're going to be like, holy cow. <laughs> Disclaimer. Yeah. Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell will always be closer to one another than their constituents in Kentucky and California. That is a true statement. Ooh. Everyone can get behind it. And so now the question is, uh-oh. What's wrong? How bad is it? Is it a feature of the system or is it a bug? How are we going to fix it? So those are some, you know, sort of some things that we can talk about a little bit. But yeah, you, we really do like let's let's hit on the young people bit a little bit more. because OK, but before we delve away from that yeah. or we turn away from it too quickly, I would like to address. Yeah. What does make those in Congress, even from completely opposing sides with mostly uh, opposite views, in a sense, still have more in agreement and more in this sort of semi-similar world than their constituents. Because I think often when you become this geriatric society of Congress people, <laughs> and I put that very politely, but it's become <laughs> more factual. and more of a factual statement, <laughs> we see that they end up forming this bond of mutual agreement among them, and they end up becoming a career politician. And that really begs the question, again, is it a feature or a bug of the democracy? And, or even a constitutional republic in the sense that we are voting for these people, 
and then they end up voting for things that actually get accomplished because we don't vote for anything that actually gets accomplished. We vote for people, and that's the end of the story for that. Mm -hmm. And so I think it really, yeah, needs to beg the question, what do you think? Should we have a more emphasis on local elections because you can actually email them and then they can address your concern or they can people who address it versus just concerning ourselves with federal elections Mm -hmm. every four years versus every two, I think is something that there's this great quote. um, I mean, it's a great stat from 2014 to 2018 that the U.S. young adults ages 18 to 24, they voted uh, in the midterm elections that nearly doubled. So from 2014, it was a 17% rate of 18 and 24-year-olds who voted in the midterm elections. Extremely low. You look at that, 17% of eligible 18 and 24-year-olds. Not even one out of five. That's that's pretty sad. Yeah. yeah. And then we see a jump up to 32% in 2018. And there can be a yeah absolute uh, plethora of reasons why this change occurred. Of course, from 2014 and 2018, we saw a lot more controversial characters come onto the political world, and we see that values themselves started being debated. We see our, our entire lifestyle get thrown up on the debate stage, and I think that really invigorated a, gen- a new generation of youth to start stop looking at politics as something to avoid and something to get involved with. And again, knowing that with age, you end up having more at stake but to really consider what did drive this trend, 17% to 20 or 32% in four years. Mm-hmm. And should you be a part of that bandwagon? You probably, I mean, elections are coming up in just under two weeks now. And I say get out and vote. Vote for those who support your values, those who you believe will make this country a better place. Mm-hmm. And to really understand, uh, especially locally, because this is the midterm season, yeah. and often midterms can get overlooked. There is no way that you should not know who your local representative is over who your, you know, senator or uh, president of the United States is. Like, mm. you, you know, even the difference between the Senate and the House of Representatives, it's like, you know, it is so hard. Like, you know, you look, you Montana, it might be a little easier to get, um, what's his name, John Tester? Is that his name? For John Tester. Yeah, it Senate. might be a little harder to get John Tester's ear um, than, you know, your guys' House of Representatives, but in Washington, oh my gosh, it's, uh, there's a long story about it, but uh, basically my dad, like, way back when he was getting out of the military, was like, there was this military benefits bill, and he was trying to get in contact with, uh, like, our senator about it, and he couldn't get to them, and then he got, he got to someone in the House of Representatives who wasn't, wasn't a Republican, I mean, you know, I feel like it's fairly obvious that my family's uh, fairly conservative and, like, you know, mm-hmm. just some Democrat, not even his district, someone from the west side, he got in contact with them. Yeah. So know, so knowing your, you know, to me, knowing your most local races is a lot more important than who the president is. For me, like, as someone who's a conservative, I would rather have 10 Ron DeSantis-type governors than one Ron DeSantis-type president. Like that's yeah, just they have more actual action on the ground and they have more connections to their people. And I think that's, yeah, very, very well thought out answer because often people would want to put them on a pedestal, say, mm-hmm. oh, we want you in the presidency because mm-hmm. you're the best versus we really want you to stay local. Mm-hmm. We want you to do your job well. And some might say that's selfish because if yeah. it's working for the state, then why not work for the nation? Yeah. But there's also, I think, a lot of bureaucracy that comes behind the scenes and can mm-hmm. really limit a person. Uh, and I, before we go off into bureaucracy, though, I want to also turn back. Like, for me, uh, in my house district, there's Lay Michelle Binkley. She represents me. 
And actually, to be honest, I don't know my Senate district name. I'm space mm -hmm. now. So I think that if I am not as connected with my local representatives as I should be, then I really think you should ask yourself, do you know the names of your House representative for the state? And do you know the name of your Senate representative for your state? Mm -hmm. So yeah, some challenge right there. Go look them up. <laughs> yeah, go find them. There's this thing called Google. It's really helpful. Always. <laughs> so... What do you think, Riley? Should we delve in off into uh, bureaucracy, or should we stay a little bit more on the current topic? Well, uh, we can sort of circle back to you know big picture democracy, but we got to talk about bureaucracy in the context of American democracy because there's mm -hmm. supposed to be three branches, and there's supposed to be executive, judicial, and legislative. And really, everyone sort of knows it now that there's a fourth branch of government, that's the bureaucracy. People who aren't elected, they're either appointed by uh, a president. Mm -hmm. Like the cabinet, which continually yeah. grows, and then they hire their people who hire their people. They're supposed to, the other thing is, they are supposed to be underneath the total authority of everyone who's in that cabinet is underneath the executive. Because every, every, they're all appointed by him. They're technically supposed to be part of the executive branch. And then they'll go and, you know, directly contradict <laughs> whatever the executive says. And that's just like, you know, some of it is style. For example, Abraham Lincoln appointed a bunch of people to his cabinet who he didn't agree with. And then there are some people who only have people they agree with in their cabinet. <coughs> Woodrow Wilson. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. I wonder what he said there. there. <laughs> but there's also this issue of, um, like, like, uh, structural power what's actually written in the document and then the sneaky soft power so if obama were to say something in his his administration was much more effective than donald trump's administration we can you know agree about we can disagree and agree about who's good and bad but the point remains that all of the bureaucracy underneath barack obama was subservient to barack obama and at every turn trump was undermined by his his own appointees and his bureaucracy. And so there's uh, there's this expression, the deep state or the swamp or whatever, and, you know, they're the ones who actually run everything. And that's, you know, I don't know about, I don't quite know about that, but I can see how they have a lot of soft power. The term I really prefer, which comes from uh, a guy named Curtis Yarvin, is the cathedral, because it's a little bit more, when people say they or the elites, and they're kind of like unspecific, that can mm -hmm. get really tiresome. Mm -hmm. But the... Hollywood, the corporate media who are in D.C., in New York, the universities, and the bureaucracy, and politicians. And so that's that's sort of supposed to be the cathedral. And one other thing we can talk about, like on the note of Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi being closer to one another than their constituents, it's like, you know, uh, to me the problem is that I'm brain farting. I'm trying to remember the exact point I wanted to make because I don't want to butcher this part. This is okay. important. Well, you think about that. I'm going to mention something I thought was really interesting. I just found on the White House's page that including members of the armed forces, the executive branch employs more than 4 million Americans. Mm. And so excluding the armed forces, I think, comes more closely to the estimate I thought. Mm. But uh, it's kind of crazy to think that you have these government employees who are appointed uh, and also hired because they aren't all directly involved in the Mm -hmm. policy making but you can see four million americans mm -hmm. and so you can see this huge growth over time and people like george washington i mean warned about there becoming 
too much of a separate group of people. It becomes an oligarchy in mm -hmm. a sense because you have a select group. Yeah, I remember what I was going to say. Thank you for saying that. Um, the like Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, and these career politician types, and we wonder how these people get elected over and over again, despite things like you know the lead, the Congress having an approval rating that's what is it now? It's got to be below. It's like well, near thirty percent. Twenty seven. Yeah, I think yeah. It's something insane. Um, and so, how do they have that low? Of an approval rating, and yet people will line up for their sides, and you know you got to go, go for my guy and everything. But it's it's that the people who get into our government, there's a lot of uh, what we can kind of come back to what Aristotle says about democracy, and he has this really interesting criticism, and he defines democracy as government by the poor, mm -hmm. and he defines he says it doesn't actually matter about the structure, and that it's an oligarchy if it's government by the rich. And so um, I'm not about to go on the whole eat the rich thing, but people who, you know, they come, most politicians, like, and most journalists, like, look it up. Like, look up, you, it'll be hard for you to find, but go look up uh, who Taylor Lorenz's family is, billionaires. Oh. Carlos Maza from Vox, billionaires. Like, all these, all these people who are um, what we would consider, like, you know, what Curtis Yarvin would consider part of the cathedral. These people, they're all from rich families, and they go to the same schools, and they live in the same couple little bubbles, which is like the L.A. San Francisco bubble, the D.C. bubble, and the New York bubble. And it, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily democracy's fault. It's just that there's two. There's sort of, you know, there's two different kinds. There's two. They're they're not connected to their constituents anywhere along the way. Like they don't right. they don't live amongst us. Whereas with Athens, you know, <laughs> it being a random draw, it's like. Oh hey, Theopolis! I saw you just got into the the Senate. That's pretty cool, you know. Like, uh, there's no it's mano a mano, yeah, face to face interaction. Yeah, and so um, part of the part of the cool thing now about having all the social media is that there's a way if people in power want to, um, because there's you know social media, you still get to choose who you interact with to a large extent, but they have an ability to talk more with normal people. And so sometimes it's also shown us how um, people in power don't, they don't even think about the same things we think about. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of, yeah, interesting thought process there about, yeah, how disconnected it is. Because often they have to campaign on certain issues mm -hmm. that will bring them the widest voter support mm -hmm. while also kind of removing themselves from the topics which most people would agree on. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing in a democracy that's built um, on this constitutional republic setting the question is, is the campaign structure of how to get your name out there, especially with newer candidates who just don't have the name reputation, don't exist mm -hmm. in those bubbles of influence, then they have to build themselves up in some way. And we used to see a lot of military, mostly mm -hmm. as veterans. They ended up becoming the president. Um, and you could see that from up to, I don't know who, who didn't serve. Maybe John Adams actually was one of the earliest who just didn't serve in the military. But besides Tons that, we people. had this huge string of military veterans. So they were war heroes. They had their name. And now we see that they're more the intellectual and or uh, influential types. Mm -hmm. You have Dick Cheney as a center and his daughter. Now Liz Cheney, of course, mm -hmm. you have that legacy. The Bush legacy. Yeah, the Bush legacy. Jeb Bush was this. If it was seriously, he was this close to getting the nomination. It was just the please clap that <laughs> thing. Probably, probably screwed him up pretty bad. <laughs> This whole 
world of influence within it really makes you wonder, yeah, how has this voting right kind of shifted into this uh, hamster wheel of kind of turning the same ideas in a new flashy way that kind of gets your attention mm -hmm. but keeps you just ignorant enough with our busy lives nowadays to really be like, okay, I guess this is just a situation that's going to continue mm -hmm. and it opens doors that weren't there before. And that's why 2016, I firmly believe, when Trump took office, it really shook up the whole political uh, status quo. And a lot of people agree, for better or worse. I mm -hmm. mean, it's definitely something that changes the game. Mm -hmm. And you can now see that during that time when a lot of the post-Bush administration, there was a now new push into the political sphere of our whole lives. Uh, and really then delving back into the topic of democracy. Why is it important, especially for a younger generation? Because the whole movement of the U.S. right now is moving again towards the ideas. And those ideas and those values you want to support, you want to end up voting for people who support their, your values. Mm -hmm. And you also want to understand that democracy, is ex it extends beyond voting itself. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, people say that a lot, and pe we don't, like, pause and think about what it means, like, voting for your values when, you know, because previously you would vote for um, pretty much an economic, like, pretty much uh, Jimmy Carter and Reagan and post that, you would vote for an economic policy and a foreign policy. And now we have, you know, the gender issue would be a huge one. Um, race started becoming a thing post-'90s. Um, and there are these other issues that they start to spill over into the moral area. And so now, like, politics actually is, once again, as actually is the default when you look at history. Like, we're really not used to it, but politics actually is where, um, you know, what, what is the old saying, Andrew Breitbart? Politics is downstream of culture. Sure. Uh -huh. And, you know, that didn't seem particularly true in the 90s or you know, 2000s, just, I voted for this guy, and, you know, we all get along, level. we just disagree on how much, you know, money and tax cuts and blah, 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 and that is definitely not the case anymore. anymore. And, uh, you know... Any economic conditions are still, I think, the leading role for voters choosing who they want to certainly vote for. And so we can see there, kind of the underlying issues still break up groups a little more, but we can still see a general consensus on economy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know... It's like people will mostly care about themselves most. So it'll be how much money do I have to spend at the gas pump? How much money do I have to give to the government every year for taxes? And that's um, it's 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 not that it's not that it's that it's just it's not just, just that, that anymore. So, yeah, it's kind of merged into this whole syncretism of ideas and policies and it's become so much more complicated, which I think also going to be a turnoff for a lot of people, is do you want to get your hands wet in such a complex situation? Mm -hmm. And I'd say it is our responsibility as citizens to be willing to really question these thoughts, to be able to question ourselves and say, what do I not know and what should I know and what do I need to start learning now? Mm -hmm. And again, we hope that this podcast, I mean, we're trying to get to the crux of the issues here, and we hope that in very complicated topics like this, some simple challenges, challenges that we have, such as get to know your local representatives, mm -hmm. really question what is a democracy and where does you, the U.S.'s constitutional republic fall in a democracy-type mm -hmm. society? And also, should you be voting? We both agree very yeah. heavily, yes. And what stops you in the past? Is it 
ignorance? Is it work? Is it schedule? Mm -hmm. Is it different reasons? Uh, really try to work out those issues and also stay connected in your community because mm -hmm. you have the most influence on the local level and that is where ground up the culture changes mm -hmm. and again politics is downstream of culture and you know definitely be open to the idea because you've been raised in a society where it's only democratic norms all the time you're only getting democratic information be open to answering the question does the system work and for me I've examined the question, and there are certain places where the system doesn't work, but I would argue that it's a bug, not a feature of democracy. Some people nowadays, especially on the right, are arguing that actually these things, like how separated the elites are from the rest of society, um, well, like why we are squabble over these other issues when we apparently agree on, you know, over 50% of things, um, you know, does, does the system work? And some people think it's a feature of democracy that these little, you know, these uh, inconsistencies happen. I think it's a bug. Um, I think, you know, w the thing is, like, president as a term, Donald Trump and Barack Obama, you know, the amount of power they wielded is not even close to the amount of power President Woodrow Wilson and FDR wielded, and that's different from the amount of power Lincoln wielded, which is different from the amount of power President Washington wielded. So it's, it's not an eternal expansion. Yeah, it's it's we do not live in the same society that was created in 1776 at all. Period. End of story. Right. So argue with that. <laughs> yeah, argue with that. Please, please send us hate mail. We need. I want to record a little thing for hate mail, like today's segment of hate mail. <laughs> but polite messages are also very well received. Yes, we we really like we we like the fan mail too. Yes, and. One last uh, segue into our YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. We have now a YouTube channel that will be highlighting clips from this podcast. And as we're starting to get a live stream up, we're going to be posting video there too. Mm -hmm. It is called Crux of the Matter Clips, I believe. It's called uh, Crux of the Matter Podcast. Oh, yeah. And so it's just a little, uh, it's a little bronze M with the black cross in the middle. Same, pretty similar format um, to the one that's going to show up on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you guys are listening to this one. So there's one clip up that's ready to go. And um, when we eventually do video podcasts, live streams, particularly interviews, um, trying to get people on, you know, I don't know if we've thought about this a ton, but if we want to, you know, we, we may integrate interviews into this podcast, and then we also might just do interviews as their own thing. Right, on but, the channel. Yeah, definitely stay tuned because we've got a couple people who are uh, – willing and ready to come on as guests and there are going to be some really cool ones so you know make sure you're following on spotify and apple and make sure you you write those reviews and share it with everyone blah 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 blah, blah the whole thing always well is there anything before i close this out riley um we sort of hit it on everything um i th i think that's i think we've pretty much hit everything that's right. i hope that this episode has been informative entertaining i know it has been for us uh, again, yeah, third time's the charm, mm -hmm. and we will constantly continue refining. And I think what I'll close this out with is a Latin phrase, Perspera ad astra, through difficulty to the stars. Mm. Take care, y'all. See you guys. Mm -hmm.